Hey folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on Fat Burning Man, where we talk about real food and real results. Did you know that your gut is responsible for producing about 90% of your serotonin, one of the leading neurotransmitters that generates your happy thoughts? Some researchers now call our gut our second brain. There's a lot going on in that gut of yours. So today, we're here with Dr. Michael Rousseau, a clinical researcher, doctor, and best-selling author whose work has been published in peer-reviewed medical journals. Before we get to the show, I wanted to share this quick note that just came in from Jim. He says, Hi, Abel. Doing pretty much what your site talks about. I shed 40 pounds last year and am content with my current path. Thanks for what you do. Best regards, Jim. Hey, Jim. Thank you for checking out fatburningman.com and uh, writing in to share your results. That's pretty nonchalant for making this all work. But uh, I'd like to point out that a uh, 15-foot canoe weighs about 40 pounds. So great job losing an entire 15-foot canoe from your body. And thanks for stopping by. I'm really glad to uh, be able to be found by accident. If It sounds like, you know, when I meet a lot of you in person. I'm like, so how did you hear about what I do? And it's, oh, I found you by accident. So it sounds like a lot of you find our work by accident, and I really appreciate that. So um, thanks for being here. Thanks for being a friend. And if you do like what we do on your social media platform of choice, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, pretty much any of the other ones, I do my best to be on there. You can follow me there. Make sure that you're subscribed. I'm going to start doing a bunch more live streaming. So make sure, uh, especially on, let's see, Facebook and YouTube, that you're subscribed there because then it'll pop up like when I go live. You can watch me and ask your questions in real time. That's going to be really fun. And here's some big news. After three years of testing, our brand new real food health supplements from Wild Superfoods are finally ready for you. We've got Omega's probiotics, uh, a vitamin D stack, as well as basically fruit and veggies called future greens that you can take anywhere with you. In fact, we're about to go on the road and uh, we're going to be taking a whole bunch. So we've got giveaways. If you're interested in any of this, uh, check out wildsuperfoods.com. Now, what does wild mean anyway? Well, I'd like to think it means that we work with the laws of nature, not against them. Uh, that we avoid anything artificial, genetically modified, or overly processed. At Wild Superfoods, each of our products is lab tested for purity and potency and formulated according to the latest cutting-edge developments in research, science, and medicine. Guaranteed nutrition no matter where you are. That's our promise, and we look forward to hearing how you like Wild Superfoods. Allison and I have been taking each of these uh, health supplements pretty much every single day for the past like geez three three plus years and we're really proud to be able to have them available for you and we're also really looking forward to releasing uh, some new ones in the months and years ahead and if you've been listening for a while then you know that this is how we're now paying the bills or at least between our educational programs at wild30.com and fatburningman.com and Wild Superfoods were able to pay the bills and support ourselves uh, thanks to your purchases by being our own sponsors. And that allows us to not have to deal with outside 
influence and, and sponsorship and capitalism and all the top-down politics that sometimes happens when you take on you know a business model that relies on advertising. So we, we don't want to go down that path. We're uh, really happy that this is starting to work. So if you'd like to support us, please check out Wild Superfoods. Dot com. And if you'd like to check out all of the new content that I'm releasing, including 360-degree virtual reality virtual tours of Yellowstone uh, National Park, the Grand Tetons, as well as national monuments, dinosaurs, volcanoes, also all sorts of cool stuff, you can check all of that out at ableJames.com. You can also find my music there as well. So you can watch all of this content, whether you're on a phone, tablet, computer or virtual reality headset i encourage you if if you know you're getting into vr or one of your friends or family members got it i encourage you to check out some of the virtual adventure tours with able james just type that into whatever virtual reality platform check that out because some of the places that that we've gone to are really cool and somewhat unpleasant in real life. So <laughs> you get the good parts without some of the bad parts. But anyway, uh, ablejames.com for that. That's A-B-E-L, james.com, and wildsuperfoods.com if you'd like to support us as well. So thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. We'll see you there. All right, on to the show with Dr. Ruscio. We're, we're chatting about how to treat the ecosystem and not the symptoms, the function of prebiotics and probiotics, what the research says and doesn't say about gut health, what you should know about hypothyroidism. This is something I struggled with personally myself, so very interesting, and much more. Let's go hang out with the doc. This episode is brought to you by Wild Superfoods and listeners like you. Whether you're looking to drop a few pounds, maximize performance for your next competition, or simply stay young and energetic, you need a name you can trust. That's why my wife Allison and I created Wild Superfoods. Our nutraceuticals and cutting-edge health supplements are literally the products we've been taking ourselves daily to upgrade our nutrition and optimize our health for the past three-plus years. And we're extremely excited to say Wild Superfoods is finally ready for you with much more to come. When you buy from Wild Superfoods, you're supporting a small family business, not a massive faceless corporation. We don't have any investors or stockholders to please, so our priority is you. We want to help you become as healthy as you possibly can be. Also, starting our own family company, it's kind of cool, has made it so we can create these shows for you without outside sponsors clouding our message of health. So if you believe in what we do, please check out Wild Superfoods. We think you'll dig it. And as a listener of Fat Burning Man, you can save over $80 on a one-time purchase or save over $128 when you select the subscribe and save option. Also, you can get free access with subscribe and save to our Fat Burning Tribe coaching and meal planning community. That place is awesome. I'll see you in there. It's usually at least $27 a month. So check out Subscribe and Save from Wild Superfoods if you want to get the tribe for free. We think you'll like it. So all you have to do is head on over to wildsuperfoods.com to order your very own health-boosting goodies for a big-time discount. One more time, that's wildsuperfoods.com. Thanks again for listening. All right, folks, this is Abel, and we're here today with Dr. Michael Ruscio. This intro was actually from, even though we'd met in the past before, I was re-introed by Rob Wolf, one of my favorite people, and he says, 
Mike is one of, if not the most, knowledgeable practitioner in the world on the topic of gut health, both what the research says and does not say, as well as clinical applications. So I would say that's that's a pretty good way to start this off. How's it going? Some big shoes to fill, I guess. <laughs> Man. Uh, um, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here and glad we had a chance to finally kind of reconnect after our first connection a number of years ago over at Paleo FX. Yeah, man. And you just came out with a super solid book about gut health, uh, which many people will be excited about because that's probably one of the most confusing areas of health these days for most people because there's so much information, misinformation, lack of information, confusing information about what to do as it relates to our, our bodies. But um, there are a bunch of things that you, that you say in your book that I love that we'll get into. Like you can't micromanage an ecosystem. But before we get there, why don't we start with how you got into this? Because it wasn't necessarily just like a, a beautiful <laughs> career choice where everything worked perfectly. Uh, you had to go through some suffering, as I understand. I did. I did. Um, I, I was in college and I was on par to go into conventional medicine. And I then started feeling fairly ill. I, I was having insomnia, brain fog, and both of those symptoms, I can't overstate how impactful they are. And insomnia, if anyone's ever suffered with it, just halts your life. It, it's the worst. You're What's waking that? up at like 2 a.m. in the morning and not going back to sleep, right? Is that... Right. And, e and even sometimes I had such cravings that I would get in my car and drive to the gas station and buy a Kit Kat bar. All the while, the other side of my brain is like, what are you doing? But there was just something going on that was so out of whack physiologically that I just couldn't sleep. I was craving sugar at night. And then during the day, I would have these bouts of brain fog where I would just feel like an idiot. Yeah. Uh, and it was I couldn't think of words. I felt like I was slurring my speech. I was having bouts of depression. Um, just really clearly not the person I was a few months ago. And I figured, well, OK, I'll go see my internist, my GP and an endocrinologist just to be super because I was an overachiever. So I did an over, overachiever evaluation with three different doctors yeah. and none of them found anything. And they all even remarked, well, you have very good cholesterol and blood sugar and triglycerides and you have a low body fat and a good body composition. So, you know, there's, it must be stress. So there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing that we can do. And they were well-intentioned, right? Sure. I have no, no quarrel at all with, with medicine, but there was nothing that they saw that they could, they could remedy. And so then I went on the internet and I read a bunch of stuff. I thought I, you know, had adrenal fatigue and I thought I had hypothyroid or at least impaired thyroid conversion. I thought I had heavy metal toxicity. And so I did all these protocols I found on the internet and got little bits of improvement, but nothing substantial and nothing that lasted. Yeah. And I, I eventually found a doctor who told me that he thought I had a parasite. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy's off his rocker, yeah. a parasite. I, you know, if I had gone to Mexico, had food poisoning, came home and then this started, I would have understood. But I had never left the country up until that point. I don't think I'd ever even had food poisoning in my life. And I had no digestive symptoms. And this is actually a, a key, I, I think, principle that's really important for the audience, which is you can have a digestive problem causing symptoms in other areas of the body 
and causing no digestive symptoms. Mm -hmm. And that's why gut health can be so important and overlooked. People can be chasing down something like skin rashes, fatigue, and depression and thinking, oh, it's got to be something else. Uh, but it could be, be emanating from your gut. And I was a perfect case of that. I had, when I did end up doing the testing, I, I was found to have an amoebic infection, a quite pathogenic amoeba. And this was causing all sorts of problems in my intestines ironically, was not manifesting as diarrhea and abdominal pain as it mm. often does, right. but rather was manifesting more neurologically, in my case, brain fog, insomnia, fatigue, depression. And so and so that experience, you know, treating that parasite was, was the only thing that really helped me to get better. And, and so I diverted my path into alternative medicine. And there was a lot of great stuff in alternative medicine, but I also felt like there were some areas where people in alternative medicine were just way too happy to be doling out very restrictive dietary recommendations and very expensive tests. Mm -hmm. And I would have really appreciated a little bit more conservatism and, and rigor with some of the thinking there. And so that led me to then start performing some of the research that we're performing in our clinic. And, and I, I've got some data published in peer-reviewed journals, and, and we should have a couple more papers that will be published soon. And uh, finally, we have a randomized placebo-controlled trial that we'll be starting in a few months. It took a long time to get that off the ground. Um, and then I wrote the book, of course, which has just under a, a thousand medical references to support the approach, trying to give people that, that optimum balance between being conservative and, and cautious and, and data-driven, but also being progressive and trying to find that right balance between the two so people can get well and, and have options, but not feel like they're being given these dietary recommendations that are excessive or out of left right. field or testing recommendations that just you know um, cripple them because of their expense. Yeah. So, well, that's terrifying and <laughs> a little bit surprising, <laughs> isn't it? They, it turns out you were infested with parasites the whole time. Is there any way to know how long that was going on or how common that sort of thing is, especially amongst people who haven't left the country? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how long it was going on, I would have guessed probably only a matter of, of months because I, I had somewhat acute downturn mm -hmm. where uh, it wasn't like a slow, gradual slide down. So I would have guessed three to six months prior to um, you know my my hitting the bottom point yeah and then in terms of how common they are not very common i, I see maybe one or two cases of this amoeba in my office per year okay. so it's not very common but what is actually more common and sometimes overlooked is what we could term dysbiosis. And dysbiosis is, is this umbrella term, but we can organize underneath it SIBO, candida, fungus, mm -hmm. um, yersinia, toxoplasmosis, blastocystis hominins, H. pylori. So all these things, parasites, so all these things that people hear about can really be organized under this umbrella term of dysbiosis. Much of dysbiosis isn't an actual parasite, but something native to your body that overgrows and then can cause some of these same problems. So sometimes it's not an Actually, in the mi minority of cases, is it some creepy crawly worm thing that gets in and, and is causing problems, but rather your own ecosystem is out of balance mm. and that's churning up inflammation and, and causing problems. Right, because at any given time, we have so many things that are good and bad inside of us, like pounds of them, right? So it's it's less about, and you mentioned this in your book, it's less about getting that one thing and that's the one evil uh, bacterium or amoeba or what have you. And it's more about getting the whole system back in check, right? Exactly. And, and this is actually a, a key concept, I think, that can help people navigate this terrain more effectively. At first, it's, it's, it's tempting for the healthcare consumer to want to perform a test 
and I'll, I'll do the test and I'll figure out exactly what's wrong and that'll tell me exactly what to do. But it's really not how it plays out. And, and I don't think everyone has fully come to realize that yet. And, and I mean, even some of the functional medicine educators, I don't think have fully come to realize that yet. And, and I understand that me saying that may be a little bit controversial, but I've also put in the time to look at this issue. Uh, and I, I rarely make strong statements, but I, I think it's, it's a very tenable statement to make that the utility of testing is there, but yeah. it's been grossly overstated. And that's because people think that there's this one thing they have to figure out. My, my case was probably a bit of an anomaly. And, it, and actually, even with my case, it was probably a year until I felt better because it was more of a monotherapy, blast out that mm. parasite. I was also histamine intolerant, probably a bit sulfur intolerant, could have used some other strategies to heal my gut. And so I, I still suffered with symptoms that slowly went away over a course of another year. And I probably could have had that all gone in six weeks had mm. I taken a more holistic approach for my gut health, and that's the same analogy we develop in the book, where it's not about just blasting out this one thing, but rather like being a gardener, looking at the health of, of the soil yeah. and trying to find the, the environmental factors that can really make the soil healthy, and usually those are multifold. Yeah, I, I loved that example because I think it, it makes it concrete for a lot of people who've had their fingers in the dirt Anyway, um, it's, it's hard to conceptualize what's going on in, in our gut. Where is the gut even? You know, it's hard to think about that. But in terms of an ecosystem, a lot of people know my brother's an organic farmer and he's had a lot of issues this this past year. Uh, a lot of it because it's been so warm up there, unseasonably warm uh, up in upstate New York. They're having to deal with a whole bunch of different pests that they haven't dealt with before. And it's not a matter of, uh, for them, usually that one pest. It's, it's looking at the soil. It's looking about what tiny little tweaks can we make here and there. It's not like uh, taking napalm to that one bug. It's really not. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and you know, people have probably heard of the microbiota, which is this world of bacteria that, that live in your gut. And it's not just bacteria. There's also fungus and, and protozoa and archaea. So there's this, this community of life that lives in your gut. And we do know that the health of the host impacts the health of this community of life. And so just to think, um, you know, one thing would be enough to cause a measurable impact. It, it, it's a bit reductionistic and, and it's a bit naive. Now we can use these different tools in concert, but just thinking like, oh, it's, it's gotta be that candida and it's it's all about the candida. And this is what I see patients come in with this, this paradigm right. of it's, it's SIBO, it's candida, and they start even internalizing it. Oh, my candida flare or my SIBO is back. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I appreciate the fact that they've educated themselves and they have the understanding from, from not knowing anything about the gut to now understanding the SIBO. But the problem is when you start tunnel visioning all of your therapeutics, around SIBO, you sometimes miss the other signals that your body is giving you, telling you, um, you know, what's working for your system and what's not working for your system. And, and, and there are a, a plethora of examples that show that things that we do to improve the health of the host will not only reduce symptoms, but will also improve the the life in the gut. And, and a low FODMAP diet, I think, is, a, is just a good quick example of that. A low FODMAP diet is essentially a diet low in prebiotics, compounds that, that feed bacteria. So a probiotic is the bacteria. A prebiotic are compounds that feed the bacteria. So a low FODMAP diet is a low prebiotic diet. Now, many would lead you to believe that you have these healthy bacteria in your gut, and if you eat lots of prebiotics, you feed those healthy bacteria, healthy bacteria, healthy host. But that's not actually how it plays out in 
said loosely the majority of cases. There are data that contradict this, but when we look at the totality of the data or the trend in the data, we see that especially the more symptomatic someone is, the more problematic it actually may be to feed this community of bacteria in the gut. And why? And what may be happening here, coming back to the holistic idea, is that the immune system that nestles up against the bacteria, they don't get along. And so if someone has an overzealous immune system and you feed the bacteria for which the immune system is trying to kind of hold in check, even though they are, quote, good bacteria, that can cause the immune system to react. And we do see the, the research showing that people who go on a lower FODMAP diet, just as one example, not the only therapeutic tool, but just as one example, will see a reduction in leaky gut, a reduction in inflammatory markers, and a reduction in um, signaling molecules of the immune system in addition to a reduction of symptoms. So this is why it's important to look holistically and not just say, well, you know, there's this microbiotic craze, everyone needs to feed their good bugs. It's not true for everyone. In fact, for some people, feeding the good bugs will cause more damage mm -hmm. and understanding that maybe the immune system is a more important part of that environmental, um, you know, symphony that needs to be taken into consideration and using a lower FODMAP diet and, and in effect causing potentially a slight starvation effect mm -hmm. will actually be the key maneuver that creates harmony in the ecosystem and finally gets a symptomatic response that a person's looking for. And then it kind of cascades after that. Yeah, and then you can kind of cascade in a, in a good direction or a bad direction. That, that's, sure. that's the thing, yeah. right? You want to, if you're doing things right, you'll start seeing improvements, and mm -hmm. then you can build upon those improvements. And I, I think one of the things that really eludes people developing the same example is they listen to what they read or, or watch on the internet, and they don't listen to the cues that their body is giving mm -hmm. them. And, mm -hmm. and so that that's what I think is very helpful about the protocol in, in my book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You, which is at the end of each step, we reassess symptomatically and use those cues to inform what direction we go. Because the, the protocol is not one linear protocol. It, it adapts based upon the individual's response because those cues are your body's way of telling you if you're doing the right thing or if you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. How many people are doing the wrong thing or in the wrong state? Uh, that's really hard to say. I, I probably get a skewed read on this because in the clinic, it's just every day, someone right. who's not able to figure it out on their own. It, it also likely has to do with where someone is on the severity spectrum. People who have very mild involvement in their gut can probably see marked benefit from any number of preliminary therapies. Mediterranean diet, paleo diet, even a clean vegetarian diet, a low-carb diet, all these things will, will probably help someone who has only mild imbalances move in a better direction. Or they keep their diet somewhat constant and they find a good probiotic formula and they feel great. So people who have the, the mild, easy cases will respond very well to many different things. But as you slide down the spectrum to moderate or severe, this is when it becomes more challenging. And you won't find just the one thing that fixes everything and I think it's those people who really suffer because they read about the in vogue thing at the moment mm -hmm. and then they do that and it's very haphazard. Give um, me a fecal and, transplant now. <laughs> right, exactly, which would be putting the cart way before the horse. Right. Uh, but, but again, coming back to the analogy of, of kind of a stepwise process, they might see 25% improvement from diet and then another 20 from the right probiotic protocol. And then they may get another you know 20% from a, a, a well-crafted antimicrobial approach. Uh, and, and so 
yeah, the, the farther you go down the spectrum, the harder it is for someone to figure this out. And, and rightfully so. I, you know, an analogy I think I use in the book also is if you were being sued, you wouldn't want to represent yourself as an attorney, right? You'd want to, you'd want an attorney who understands how to use the law effectively mm-hmm. just because you have access to protocols doesn't necessarily mean you know how to use those protocols effectively. Right. And, and it's a highly individualized thing, as you mentioned, right? Uh, right. You need to, throughout this whole process, keep your intuition intact, build the the natural senses that you have or like how am i doing how am i feeling right now because a lot of people are quite disconnected from their guts especially right um it's not something that we've been trained to think about a whole lot it's it's difficult to conceptualize in a lot of cases so what are some of the the things that everyone or that most people can do to to make a slight improvement whether it's uh, kicking certain foods or habits out or, or putting something in, what, what are the easy wins for people? Sure, sure. I think the, the lowest hanging fruit would be making sure you're exercising at least a few days a week. And if you really want to maximize for that, and we also talk about this in the book, exercising in nature and with a friend, because then you get three <laughs> things. You, you exercise, you get social connectivity, and you all which have been shown to have measurable therapeutic benefit. And it's, it's important because sometimes you think, well, oh, this is the most exotic adrenal formula and I'm looking at the marketing for it because all these pathways. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's, it's fairly safe to say that taking a walk in nature with a friend will have a, a more drastic improvement on your energy and self perceived sense of well-being than even the best adrenal support formula on the market. And sometimes it's important, it's important to contextualize that as such because people want to go right to the new cool thing, um, which may have its time and its place, but that would be one, uh, you know, walking yeah. or exercising in nature with a friend. That's a really nice trifecta from a lifestyle perspective, making sure you're getting time in the sun. Mm-hmm. Also important. These are things people have probably heard in, in, in one way or another from a dietary perspective, a paleo diet is, is a good place to start. But if people have gone on a paleo diet and I think Two to four weeks is all you really need mm-hmm. to at least get an initial assessment of I'm moving in the right direction. If you can't clearly say that you're moving in the right direction after two, three weeks, then it's probably not the right diet for you. Now, I wouldn't say that you will achieve all of your improvement in that two to three weeks. But again, you're looking for that key indicator from your body that, okay, something here is clearly better than it was two to three weeks ago. Yeah. But for some people, ironically, they go on a paleo diet and they feel a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people feel no change. Some people even feel worse. And these people may be the subset that are FODMAP sensitive. And and so we discuss in the book essentially one or two ways you can go from there if you've noticed or you have an inkling that the non-paleo foods like dairy and gluten are problematic for you. You can then do the paleo low FODMAP diet, which is a union of paleo and low FODMAP. Mm-hmm. But there are other people who – especially people who are underweight and have other known foods that they don't tolerate well. Like for some people, they're very sensitive to many vegetables, but seem to do okay on grains. Mm-hmm. These, this subset also tends to be more underweight. And they can go on the standard low FODMAP diet, which allows certain dairy and certain grains. And you know, before the paleo enthusiasts want to string me up as being a heretic, it's important to keep in mind that some of these people, and we actually just published a case study, or we'll be publishing it soon on our website, for some people like this, they come in underweight and very afraid of grains, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what they need to be eating because their gut isn't healthy enough yet to process vegetables. And, and we're about to publish uh, a case study with this gentleman named Randy who was literally having a hard time walking upstairs 
Hmm. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, boy, like, could this be like early progress MS or something really more cardiovascular that's serious in nature? Yeah. And when we upped his significantly upped his carb intake to have him eat more grains and some gluten, he gained I think five, maybe ten pounds in three to four weeks, and he wow. was he power washed his entire deck. You're kidding, literally. Me. And he, he goes, my wife's thrilled. I'm happy. So for him, he just needed to have that shift in his macros. He was still a little bit sensitive to vegetables. Grains seemed to really sit well with him. Hmm. And he, he and we didn't say eat gluten-containing grains, but we didn't say don't have any of those. So he had some gluten-containing grains sometimes, noticed no negative reaction to those, and overall was feeling much better. So sometimes if we can just excise the dogma out of the dietary recommendations and again use someone's cues from their body, we can really help get them to the diet that can be the most serving for them. Right, because we're not only just individuals, but also if you look at each individual over the course of time, it's a moving target, right? Like, so if you're going Absolutely. low FODMAP, that's not necessarily a, a lifetime choice, right? That's more of a stepping stone to get healthy again. I mean, you make such a good point. And, and this is something that we talk about in the, the reintroduction step, which comes a little bit later in the book protocol, which is, and, and I set this expectation that people will be able to eat more foods. And that's actually very important. Setting that expectation is actually very important because in randomized control trials with IBS, so a randomized control trial, you're, you're specifically trying to design out of the study design the placebo effect, mm -hmm. yet it remains at 45% on average in randomized specific control trials in IBS. So yeah. your, your thoughts about food have a powerful impact on the manifestation. And this is one of the reasons why, and I'm, and I'm sure you picked this up from the book, there is no dogmatism, there is no fear mongering, there is no overzealousness about things like gluten or dairy saying that's going to upregulate inflammatory peptides for six months. And no one can ever have any at any point, you know, because that does not, in my opinion, help people, nor does the, the best scientific evidence that we have to date support the need for that level of restriction. So, yes, we want to get people to the point of the broadest diet in the long term, and that legitimately can happen. We do see that in many studies that people who are more sensitive to foods, as they heal their gut and things rebalance, they become less sensitive to foods. So, um, if we're going to use the placebo effect, let's use it accurately based upon what the literature says, mm -hmm. and let's use that to help make someone feel like they're healthier than they are. Because unfortunately, and and this is this is one thing that I the conversation I have whenever I, I do any kind of training for clinicians, I ask the audience the question: If you, if you couldn't get it perfect, if you had to either overshoot or undershoot in mm -hmm. terms of how healthy or sick you made someone feel at the end of a consult with them, would you want to make them feel more sick or more healthy? than they actually are, right? If you can't get it perfect, we always wanna shoot for the side of making them feel healthier than they are because that will have a measurable impact on their health. And, and so that's a concept I try to carry into the book of trying to showcase the empowering side of diet rather than the fearful damaging side of diet because that will manifest in someone's worldview. And I do see that in the clinic where people come in and they're afraid of food and, and part of their illness is, is literally psychosomatic because they're expecting to feel sick if they ever eat any of these foods. And it becomes this kind of placebo-driven, self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So you're kind of creating your own uh, anxious gut in that case, right? right? That can't handle right. food anymore. That's fascinating. 45% for placebo effect is astonishing. And I totally agree with you. We should, we should be harnessing that for good as much as we possibly can, because clearly we don't understand everything there is to know about the body, how it works and, and all of that. Uh, yet the placebo effect is something that doesn't really go away. 
But that makes it sound like eating is, is almost more of an emotional thing and a psychological thing than even a scientific one. Well, for some people, and for some people it is, and and you know, there, there's another case study that we're writing up right now that we'll publish on our website, with this brilliant psychotherapist came into the office, and was very well researched, knew knew you know quite the, the breadth of, of data regarding gut health, but and she had seen a number of providers before, and she wasn't really able to get the traction that she was looking to get, and and she came in with this air of oh, this is the expert, we're going to dig into this, kind of rolling her sleeves up mentality, yeah, and and I. I could see clearly that there was very little wrong with her and that what she had done was she had far overshot the landing and she was now treating herself like someone who was really sick in terms of how she was eating and what she was thinking and what she was doing and what she was taking and what she needed to do was kind of throttle back and move into the maintenance and enjoyment of your life phase of the healing journey and when she did that and it was very it was very tense i remember leaving that visit feeling like you know it wasn't what she wanted i could tell that what i said was not what she wanted to hear but when she came back a month later she said i cannot thank you enough i feel better than i felt in years and what had she been doing having a drink every once in a while eating some off-plan food and just letting go a little bit and enjoying her life. And now that's not every case, right? There's right. the majority of people probably need to fix the problems, but for some people, the the emotional, psychological aspect, if not addressed, will be the thing that thwarts them from achieving what they're looking to achieve. Yeah. And I, I think you can't really emphasize that point enough these days with the internet with uh, being so plugged in to social media and everyone's chattering about this thing's horrible for you, this thing's good for you. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's easier than ever to overthink something. And also, and I'm sure you have a unique on take on this as well as a doctor, but the idea of being able to look up whatever you think your problem might be on your phone or on your computer and get who knows what kind of information back. That's a big problem, isn't it? And I'm talking mostly about psychology at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic point. And there, there's a, a post I've been thinking about writing, which kind of walks through why patients could be more prone to get diseases that they research than their doctors do. And I think part of that reason why is because uh, doctors, or at least you know, well-informed clinicians at large, will understand not only the signs and symptoms, but also the prevalence and the right. prevalence is important. And and using non-celiac gluten sensitivity as an example, it's a, this is a good tie into a study that I think is very important for the audience to be aware of. So non-celiac gluten sensitivity is essentially you don't have celiac, but you clearly have this reaction to gluten, right? That that's a, in the research, it's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. It's a legitimate, you know, clinical entity where there have been at least four, maybe now five clinical trials substantiating this concept. So yes, you know, we do see scientific validation for the concept that there are people who are not celiac but who will have a problem with gluten. Yes, is that inflammation but that's the problem? Mostly? It may be inflammation. It may be kind of immune system inflammation. Part of it may also be the FODMAP content. So, mm. you know, of these trials, four out of five showed that it was actually something to do with the gluten itself and it was not the the prebiotic-rich FODMAP component of the gluten. But one trial did find that. So for some people, it might be the prebiotics. For other people, it might be the immune system. And at least the initial data says it might be the immune system for more people. But I, I don't know that we have fully answered that question just yet. Yeah. 
right? Um, but in this study, it, it was in Italy, and they, they looked at 12,225 patients, and they found that the prevalence, and I should mention, this is a group of gastroenterologists, a multi-center study that put together a 60-point evaluation to really try to dig in and figure out you know, what were the symptoms, what were the associated comorbidities, uh, what lab markers might be useful, and they found a 3% prevalence of non-celiac gluten sensitivity in the population that they studied. And they cite other data from the U.S. because the you know, Roundup use in the U.S. and Europe is different. So that's one contentious point, which I think is totally reasonable. So they uh, cited data in that study showing that the United States has found a 0.6 to a 6% prevalence. So it might be more in the US, yes, totally open to that argument. I think there's plausibility there. Mm -hmm. But again, let's look at what the data shows when people try to honestly answer this question. And it looks that uh, 6%, at least according to the best data available, is a prevalence in the US. Now, when I make people aware of this, one of two things usually happen. People find that encouraging or people try to argue with me about that. And I don't think it's something that we should be arguing over because the recommendation, I think, is, is a highly tenable recommendation, which is eliminate gluten for a term and then reintroduce it and avoid gluten to tolerance. Yeah. Right. I think it's hard to argue with that because then you will find where you fall in that spectrum. Now, really quick here, and sorry if I'm monologuing, but no, um, sometimes the, the argument is made that, well, you'll be fueling inflammation in your body that will not manifest symptomatically for weeks or months or years. Okay, you know, I'm open to that concept, but we're going to need to have some kind of data to support that concept. And again, what this study found was that over 90% of the participants that had non-celiac gluten sensitivity reported a discernible reaction within 24 hours. 90% so you said? Not over 90%. Wow. So there were some that had this delayed reaction, but the vast, vast majority noticed either a neurological or a dermatological or a rheumatological or a digestive reaction within 24 hours. So it kind of refutes that argument that you have to avoid gluten on blind faith, which yeah. I, I don't think is accurate. And, and last point on this study, they found that 30% of the people with a problem with gluten could have gluten once they addressed another underlying problem in the gut, like bacterial overgrowths or FODMAP sensitivities. Right? So there's a lot of hope here. Gluten can be something that can be used to help people get healthier, but we want to wield that, that informational sword very carefully because if we're overzealous with it, then I think we end up creating more harm in someone than we do good. And, and you know, it may not be that you have to avoid gluten forever, yeah. but eliminate heal your gut, reintroduce, and then avoid it to the level that you're intolerant. Strong reaction, strong avoidance, mm -hmm. no reaction or mild reaction, then mild avoidance. Right. Well, and I think it's also worth bringing up, we tend to oversimplify things, right? Where it's like gluten is just a thing, except it's <laughs> not really when you look more closely at what you're actually eating. So I'll use myself as an example. When I was, you know, before I ate this way and I was eating more like a vegetarian, I was very physically active, I was running a lot. I was eating whole grain bread from the store and I didn't have a whole lot of money. So it, I, it, I'm sure it wasn't the best that I could buy, but maybe it was because it was in like HEB in Texas or something, right? Now, that wasn't necessarily whole grain in the way that we'd like to define it. It was also packed with all sorts of different additives. Sulfates are one that my, my mother has had problems with. I believe I do as well. 
you know, there are so many things that are in that, certainly gluten, but I would imagine a different kind than, for example, the most recent loaf of sourdough that my wife Allison made was with spelt and uh, I believe rye, both of which are gluten grains, but it's a sourdough that, you know, we've been working on that starter for over a year now. It's been, you know, eaten by that starter over the course of time. We cooked it kind of low and slow. We didn't add any sulfates or preservatives or extra gluten to make it extra poofy or anything. Those are fundamentally different things. So like the idea that you can or can't eat gluten just seems like such an oversimplification, right? It's, it's one of those examples of trying to use the napalm on that one little bug. It's less about that and more about thinking at a higher level, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. The food, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the food quality matters, that the preparation matters. Absolutely. And, and you know, maybe to, to play devil's advocate on that point, even though I agree with it, yeah. the other thing I'd, I'd like for people to be able to have, and this is coming back to Randy, and, and we discussed this in the, the video that we're going to publish with him. When I said, you know, you can have some gluten, I was mainly thinking, I want this guy to start eating more carbs because he's deathly ill and fatigued. I don't want him to be at a work function and the only thing he can eat that has carbohydrate in it contains gluten and then therefore he does not eat that. Yeah. So sometimes I think it's just allowing people a little bit of leeway to maybe eat something that's not the healthiest thing, but let them find their own level of reactivity. And if, if they're okay with that, yeah, we don't want to make it a staple, but if they can have leeway on occasion, we want them to be able to have that leeway so that they just don't feel any additional encumbrances from their diet and they have to. The, the aim will always be the best quality food, but if someone falls short, we don't want them to go into that internal stress response about, oh my God, what did I just do? Uh, you know, Especially if they haven't qualified that symptomatically they can't have that poor quality food. You know, If they notice that when they have that poor quality food, they have a problem, will learn from those bodily cues and adjust accordingly going forward. But if they can have a little bit of leeway, I want them to have that leeway to prevent that fear response. Right, right. Now, shift gears just a little bit. In the past year or two, it seems that keto has even eclipsed paleo in terms of a way of eating, in, in terms of hype and all of that sort of thing. But uh, the way that most people are doing keto is more like it reminds me of Atkins. I remember my driver's ed instructor when I was learning how to drive would have me drive him to McDonald's because he was on Atkins to get three hamburgers. He'd take off the buns and just eat the burgers. And that was oh, his man. healthy diet. <laughs> and so it's like I see a little bit of that going on with the people who are just chowing on cream cheese and a bunch of other just, yeah, they're fatty and, and they're keto but that's not really nutrition. So what are the implications of, I guess, if you know them, of, of the super high fat keto that some people are doing these days? Have you, have you seen anything? No, I, I haven't dove deep into that specifically, but there are, are I think, a couple of salient points we can pull from the literature on this that, that aren't relevant to the conversation. I would agree with, with what you're generally pointing at, which is if you're going to go keto, we should always opt for the highest quality of food, in this case, fats, that we can. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes the, the, the contentious point is, well, you need fiber to feed your, your gut bugs and to sweep your colon and, and all this. Uh, and if not, you may have an increased risk of colorectal cancer or, or all these other things that, that fiber helps prevent. And this was the most challenging part of the book to read. Uh, literally 157 pages of abstracts that I, I had to cull through. And and I, I, I almost 
you know, if I was ever going to quit, that was the closest mm-hmm. I came um, because I care about the truth. Right. And mm-hmm. what I don't want to do is bring my preconceived bias into the conversation and then exit with that same preconceived bias. And, and to think like that is much more difficult because you have to give every piece of data your equal attention and also monitor yourself for any biases that are creeping up yep. and try to always be catching yourself if you're only looking at the things that show favor for what you think should be right and kind of negating the things that don't. So it was very challenging. And not only that, but you have to look at the level of the quality of the evidence. An observational trial doesn't carry as much weight as a randomized placebo control trial. Right. So there, there's a lot there to, to weigh. And it was very challenging. But what I can tell you from going through that is there's no consistent data showing that fiber prevents colorectal cancer, diabetes, heart disease, obesity. No. In fact, you see about a 50-50 split, generally speaking, where some do show benefit, but an equal, approximately equivalent number show no benefit. And and where this becomes challenging is if you believe fiber is good for you or bad for you, you can find data to support that, right? And that's the 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 way I concluded that chapter. Right. And that's the way I concluded that chapter, which was, Um, Imagine if I, as an author or a researcher, was sold on one camp. I could have written an entire chapter with the pro studies and left out the con and and absolutely misleaded the reader. Mm -hmm. And and, and so so I said it's important to really choose who you follow carefully because if not, you you run the risk of, of being misled. Now, why that's relevant is there are some people that are very sensitive to fiber and certain vegetables or metabolically do better with a lower carb diet. Uh, Although the effect size for the benefit from a lower carb compared to a moderate carb diet I think is modest, but it is there. But anyway, why that's important is because for the people that don't do well on higher fiber diets, like those with IBS and IBD, they get scared and they think, oh my God, am I going to have an increased incidence of colorectal cancer? But you know, we do see both a paleo diet and a Mediterranean diet, moderate carb, higher carb, and, and fiber correlates with that, both show protective benefit against colorectal adenomas, at least according to some of the preliminary research, in addition to that broader analysis that I discussed earlier. So that's important because, again, the fiber doesn't seem to make a huge difference. It can be used um, in some select cases, especially if people are constipated, and then upping your fiber intake can be beneficial. But for other people, and and I think Rob was actually one of these people banging his head against the wall for a while with a higher fiber diet, and then just seeing when they brought down the fiber content, they felt so much better. Hmm. Sometimes just having the confidence to listen to your body yeah. can be a very freeing experience. And I've been guilty of that myself. Right? There, there have been things I was doing dietarily that were just ingrained into my head and they weren't working for me, but I thought so fervently that I needed to do those yeah. that I never listened to my body. So, you know, fiber... It can help certain things, but it's you don't have to have fiber to have a healthy gut and have a healthy microbiota. And when I say you don't have to have fiber, I'm not recommending a zero fiber diet, mm-hmm. but you don't have to have a higher fiber diet in order to have those health benefits. That makes sense. Now, there are several different types of fiber. Some is from fruit and veg and others oatmeal and, and things like that. Are there any like prebiotics that are that do have some benefit that's um, that's clear? Mm-hmm. Well, prebiotics and fiber do show benefit, right? And this is where it gets murky because, you know, there, there's not 
just one pile of studies showing benefit or detriment. There's a mixture. Okay. Um, yeah. And this is what we talk about in the book also. And, and essentially the way you can parse through this, while it's not perfect, there is clearly a data trend in this direction. And that is those who are the most symptomatic, especially digestively, have the highest risk for a negative reaction from fiber and okay. prebiotic intake. Yeah, but there's also sense. some nuance. There's some nuance. With, with prebiotics, 3.5 to 5 grams per day seems to be the sweet spot that shows benefit but doesn't run the risk or runs the minimal risk of adverse reactions. And prebiotics have been shown to help with things like constipation and inflammation in the bowel. And probably the best data is the ability to lower blood sugar. But there's a decent level of adverse events reported, and most of those adverse events are digestive side effects. So it's important to keep that in mind. Fiber probably shows a little bit less of a benefit in terms of lowering things like blood sugar, but fiber is probably the most beneficial for those with constipation in terms of some of these natural therapies. Magnesium and vitamin C, natural laxatives, also helpful, but fiber can definitely be helpful for stool bulking, and that can help with you know, expulsion of the stool and, and hence help with constipation. And there are some fibers that are more prone to making gases and therefore making you feel bloated than others. And so glucomonin was, was one fiber that there was excitement about for its potential with weight loss, um, but it, it had a high level of adverse events. Mm. And we talk about different fiber types and, and who may do best with, with each, but essentially it looks like a predominantly soluble fiber will be the least avoid of, of causing reactions in those with, with sensitive guts. Okay. Um, but there are some fibers that are also low solubility and low fermentability. And this gets a little bit you know, into some of the murkier details that are only relevant if you're really sensitive, but it's nice to know them if you are really sensitive, because when they matter, you'll, you'll be happy to have that, that information. Right. Now, what about intermittent fasting and the effects on the gut? What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're somewhat early in our understanding, although I, I have to profess, I, I didn't do a, a very deep dive on intermittent fasting's impact on the gut when I wrote the book, but we, we were able to find at least one trial or an observational cohort study in IBS and one in IBD showing benefit for digestive function by using intermittent fasting. And it's, it's one of the first things that we actually incorporate into the step one of the book protocol where we help people try to outline their ideal diet. Mm -hmm. One of the pieces to outline is meal frequency. Some people will not do well with small frequent meals. Mm -hmm. Some will, but for some, their gut needs time devoid of food in order to run various housekeeping functions. Some of this is apoptosis, which is recycling of dead cells. Some of this is a sweeping function known as the migratory motor complex, which cleans out bacteria and fungus and prevents it from kind of growing up and overgrowing. Yeah. Um, so we do know for some people that fasting can be helpful. And we talk about essentially a modified liquid fast in the book that will give people some calories, but it won't be zero calorie because sometimes that can be a little bit challenging for people. And, and we start them off with a two to four day liquid fast. And then if they respond well to that, we encourage them to shoot for um, larger, less frequent meals. And if they have a really hard time with that, we steal them toward smaller, more frequent meals. But definitely for some people, the addition of intermittent fasting can be a game changer. This just made me think it's not exactly on topic, but in your book, you, you mentioned having to wake up in the middle of the night with cravings. Right. Now, one of the things that I find so interesting about, about the gut and, and that whole idea is that we've heard the gut as the second brain 
and the idea that you had parasites at the time makes me think like those cravings aren't yours, right? Like you're, we tend to own everything, our problems, our symptoms, our cravings, what we want, what we don't want. But what if the cravings weren't necessarily from you as much as from the condition, from, you know, the state of your gut? I think it's important that people start to think that way a little bit more. And it sounds like that's, that's more how you treat people. It, yeah, it is. And I, and I think you make a good point, which is, yes, there, there, there is a degree where the, where the mind has to just override the body and you have to you know, try to have a schedule and try to let a little type A kind of creep in to, to get you in the, going in the right direction. But then there's also this point of, you know, sometimes it's the, the physiology that drives the behavior and not the behavior that drives the physiology, right? So if someone's really sick and inflamed, they're not gonna be able to be that, get up early and get this done because they just don't have the biology to, to drive that. So it's important to look at it kind of from both ends where you, you wanna try to set yourself up for success, but we also wanna listen to your body and if it's just clearly dauntingly difficult and you just can't do it, then it may not be that you're, you're weak or whatever it is, but we need to try to get the biological support there so that you, you know the, the body and the mind can kind of be on the same page and achieve the goal. Right, I can't believe it, but we're already coming up on time. I want to make sure that we don't miss anything. Is there anything that you think is really important for people to understand about the gut, things that they can do uh, before we go? Yeah, there's a whole <laughs> Yeah, a there whole are a bunch, bunch right? Um, <laughs> you could talk more about your book right before we go, but just uh, let's dig in a little bit more because we have a few more minutes. Sure. So there's a couple other things that I think can be helpful for people. Um, one is understanding that we can organize all probiotic products into three categories, and this sometimes eludes people, and what they end up doing is they keep trying different names of products, but they keep yeah. trying the same category. Okay. So there's three categories of probiotics, and it's important someone try one from each category, bringing Rob Wolf back into the conversation, because he always has a funny way of terming things. He, does. He, he, had never, he had never tried a Saccharomyces boulardii probiotic until we had discussed this. And after he tried one, he said he was pooping like a teenager for the first time in years. <laughs> I don't right? even know so what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently, he was pooping great when he was a teenager and, and not so much of late. That so for some Rob. people, just just yeah, just finding th that miss in your probiotic protocol can be helpful. That the three categories are one Lactobacillus bifidobacterium blends, two Saccharomyces boulardii, and three a spore forming or a soil based probiotic. And this typically contains strains of the Bacillus family. And and so that's one thing that can be really helpful. The other is understanding how to I guess we could say poke the microbiota or, or, or kind of nudge the microbiota if it's stuck in this dysbiotic state, this imbalanced state. Everything we've talked about thus far will build the environment so as to make it more toward equilibrium. But sometimes people require a poke with some kind of antimicrobial or a nudge with some kind of antimicrobial therapy. Mm. And this is where things like oregano or allicillin or, or berberine or caprylic acid can come in. And it's Sometimes what I observe with people is they've done one of these things, but they haven't done them in the right sequence. And so they're trying to get the soil to respond, but they just dump a bag of fertilizer and walk away. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, we need to do more than just dump fertilizer or, you know, um, hose it down with a ton of water. And, and so if we use a well-constructed antimicrobial protocol at the right time when building in these other environmental cues, then that can be the difference between someone who said, well, I've done a parasite cleanse in the past or I've used oregano in the past and I was helped for a little while, but not fully, 
between them saying, yes, you know, I finally feel like my gut's gotten back into balance. And then one other thing I would add in along with that is for some people, all these things don't work and, and or fully work. And what can really help them is the use of what's known as an elemental diet. And elemental diets are essentially very hypoallergenic, low slash no fiber and prebiotic meal replacement shakes that you can use and you can undergo a liquid only diet for a short term. And this can actually be a very cathartic chance for the gut to heal. It's it's similar to intermittent fasting in terms of not giving the gut any stuff to have to break down. But this is a full meal replacement. So now someone could be on this for five, six, seven days or longer, okay. yeah. and they won't lose weight. They won't feel fatigued. They won't feel emaciated. I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes people have a negative reaction to the formula. But as a general rule, these can be very helpful, especially for those people who have been somewhat recalcitrant to any other kind of therapy. Okay. So kind of a reset. One quick question about uh, oregano oil. Having taken it myself, it's pretty intense stuff. Can you take it too much? You don't want to take it every day. When do you take it? So uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So for, for most people, if they use oregano as part of a targeted antimicrobial slash dysbiosis protocol, then they'll only need to use the oregano for one, maybe two months. Okay. Now, some people will have this tendency after they've used antimicrobials to go from feeling really well to then slowly re regressing. And this can be mitigated if we get all the environmental cues in order like we talked about ahead of time. And in some cases, people may need post-antimicrobial prokinetic therapy, which essentially is a preventative measure that helps kind of keep sweeping bacteria down and out of the, of the rectum and not allowing it to grow back up into the small intestine. Or people may need to modify that antimicrobial approach a little bit with the addition of what's known as antibiofilm agents. And for some people, they can have a bacterial or fungal colony that can start to build this protective coating around it known as a biofilm. And if we can co-administer antibiofilm agents along with the antimicrobial agent, we can break that fence and then the oregano can finally get in there and do what it's trying to do to rectify that dysbiosis. And, and, and um, we, we are in the process of publishing to my knowledge, the first study that has shown that the co-administration of antibiofilm agents can enhance the treatment effect of herbal antimicrobials in eradicating SIBO. Wow. So there, there is some growing legitimacy to that to that concept. Um, so again, you know, the analogy used in the book also I think is a mechanic. If we let you into the mechanic's machine shop, could you fix your car? Well, not if you weren't trained as a mechanic. And so just because someone can buy oregano at Whole Foods doesn't mean they know how to orchestrate that along with right. everything else and use it the right way. So don't think just because I'm not talking about the newest, best antimicrobial herb on the planet that this couldn't help someone who's done antimicrobials before because it's not about having this magic thing. It's not about the, the magic protocol that I talk about in the book. It's having the right process. And that sometimes is the difference between success and failure for people. It's not knowing what to use, when, in the right sequence, um, and how to orchestrate these things to get that long-term lasting impact. But it can be done. So for people who are discouraged, you know, it, it definitely can be done. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, well, before we go, would you mind telling folks a little bit more about your book, the Cliff Notes version, and uh, also where people can find you and, and find your book as well? It's Healthy Gut, Healthy You. I wrote this book. It took me three years. There's just under a thousand references in the book, and I wanted to give someone everything they needed to fully understand all the important issues regarding their gut health and more importantly, 
put that all together into a, an adaptable protocol to help one heal their gut and, and do so in a well-informed, empowered way, not making someone feel dependent upon supplements or afraid of food. Uh, and so far, the feedback that we've been getting is has been absolutely fantastic. And if people wanted to learn more about the book, they can go to healthyguthealthyyoubook.com. It's available on Amazon and also as a Kindle Nook. So there's the, the ebook version and the print book version. And I would invite anyone who's looking for uh, what I try to make the one resource that will navigate you through all these tumultuous topics. And, and hopefully that you know, that book will be uh, <laughs> will be it. Yeah, right on. Well, I, I can say having read quite a few <laughs> books, many of them are quite dry, quite boring. And for the amount of uh, research that you've put into your book, it's very readable. And uh, I think, you know, not necessarily easy to understand, but something that everyone needs to understand, you know, and it's not like all the research is finished far from it. But I, I think that the work that you're doing and a few other peers in the field is so important right now, because obviously we don't understand enough about our own bodies and the gut and the work that you're doing right now is, is incredibly important and very much welcome. So thank you so much for coming by the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It's always great to talk about the gut. And and really, you know, I, I, I agree that this, this gut work is so important because I, I can't tell you the number of people who come in and they've been chasing down thyroid or serotonin and dopamine levels. And there, there are clearly a time and a place for many different things in, in the healthcare picture. But if someone has taken preliminary steps to improve their diet and their lifestyle and they're not feeling well, what I've observed, and I think there's a good body of literature to support this, the next step should then be optimizing your gut health and then reevaluating your symptoms. And you may notice the symptoms that you thought were heavy mental toxicity or low serotonin or, or what have you melt away and then you can just get on with your life and, and start enjoying whatever it is that you want to do outside of your health. Yeah, I dig it. So um, anyone who's listening, thank you so much. You can find the full write-up for this show at fatburningman.com and just search for Dr. Ruscio. And uh, I think aside from that, we pretty much did it. You rocked this and I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me on. This episode is brought to you by Wild Superfoods. Let's start with a quick question. Do health supplements really work? After testing many hundreds of tonics, supplements, powders, and potions over the past seven plus years, my wife Allison and I have found very few companies that we actually trust. Massive, faceless corporations seem to be running the show, often prioritizing profits well above our collective health. Many supplements in stores and online are of extremely low quality, are ridiculously overpriced, and some don't even contain the active ingredient they're supposed to be selling. We all deserve much better. That's why my wife, Allison, and I created Wild Superfoods. We're a small family business, and we take our own products daily because we think they're the best out there. Our Ultimate Daily Bundle provides you with a complete supplement regimen that you can trust to deliver maximum health benefits without the guesswork. Whether you're looking for Mega Omegas, Vitamin D Stack, Probiotic Spheres, or Future Greens, our cutting-edge supplements have you covered? And as a listener of Fat Burning Man, you can save over $80 on a one-time purchase or save over $128 when you select subscribe and save. All you have to do is head on over to wildsuperfoods.com. You can type it into your address bar right now to order your very own health-boosting goodies for a rocking listener discount for a limited time. And as always, if you don't love 
any of our products from Wild Superfoods, then you get your money back. So one more time, all you have to do to check it out is visit wildsuperfoods.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you there. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fat Burning Man. If you liked it, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, the podcast app, or wherever else you might be listening to or watching this show. Got a second? Please leave me a quick review on iTunes. I always love hearing from you. And if you think someone else might like and benefit from this free show, please take a second to share it with a friend or with a family member. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at FatBurnMan and Facebook by typing in Abel James or FatBurningMan. Drop me a line anytime. Did you know that I've recorded over 150 episodes of Fat Burning Man, winning four awards in independent media and hitting number one in more than eight countries? And here's some more good news. You can download and listen to every single episode for free. All you have to do is type in fatburningman.com. I'll give you a second to type it in, fatburningman.com. And you'll get all the show notes in video and audio versions for all the past episodes of Fat Burning Man. Better yet, enter your best email at fatburningman.com, sign up for my newsletter, and I'll even send you a quick start guide to start burning fat right now and a few of our ridiculously tasty recipes as a special thanks for signing up. Once again, just go to fatburningman.com right now, enter your best email to get your free fat burning download straight to your inbox and make sure that you never miss a show again. This is Abel James signing off. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.